and he, and he writes his own music. It kind of actually fits with today's message, Rick. So it's, um, in, in our Sunday night Bible study recently, um, we talked about how we would not want our sins to be laid bare before all to see. I mean, that's intense, right? right? To think about all of the inner workings of our hearts, all of the indiscretions of our life being set up right here on the screen for everyone to, to view. How comfortable would we be sitting in here today if we knew, Bob, go ahead and turn it on. We're gonna, we're gonna start with, with a bond. I mean, you know, it's, it's not something that um, we would look forward to, right? And yet, God already sees and knows everything. So the inner workings of our heart are actually already laid bare every day before God. In light of what the Almighty sees and what he knows, I think every single human being should feel similar to our small Sunday night group, a sense of fear and a sense of shame. For there is not a single one of us who would be able to question the accuracy of God's testimony against us. The grounds for our conviction is overwhelming. And with this in mind, we resume today in our series of 66 books, 66 messages, and we are with the minor prophet Zephaniah. And Zephaniah addresses the day of the Lord and the coming judgment of God. He addresses a time in which the sins of humanity shall be made known when each person will give account for his or her life. And Zephaniah's point of view is that while nothing, nothing can prevent the coming of the day of the Lord, people can prepare for it. We cannot prevent its coming, but we can prepare for it. To see this, I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, but I'm going to comment on other parts of the prophet's warning to us as well. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord. 
until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with my fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments he has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Let's bow your hearts in prayer with me again. Lord, bless, I pray, the reading and proclamation of your word. Christ, be glorified, we pray. Amen. Notice with me first that Zephaniah establishes God's just and exhaustive judgment. Looking back to the beginning of chapter 3, which we did not read, we find out why people face judgment. It is because we are a rebellious, wayward people. <laughs> Indeed, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Verse 2 speaks to how we are so often hard-hearted, idolatrous, faithless, and arrogant. It serves as the impetus for all forms of ungodliness in our lives. Verse 3 speaks to how we are so often exploitive of other people, unjust, unloving, unkind. It serves as the impetus for showing such little concern for our neighbor. It shows how we are so often just quick to pass by those that Jesus would call the least of these, my brethren. Verse 4 speaks to how we so often twist Scripture to our own liking. How we ignore clear biblical teaching and dishonor the Lord in worship. It expresses the mentality of our day which refuses to even call boys boys and girls girls. 
It speaks to a time now where in churches we're more concerned about public opinion than we are about preaching the truth of God's word. Verse 5 then says, the Lord will do no unrighteousness. The sin of humanity deserves his judgment. And that judgment will be complete. Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 4 through 7 details that total destruction will fall upon the Philistine territory. And that was Judah's western neighbors. Chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 details that total destruction will fall upon Moab and Ammon. And they were Judah's eastern neighbors. Chapter 2 verse 12 details that total destruction will fall on the regions surrounding Cush. And that would encompass Egypt, the Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia. They were Judah's southern neighbors. Chapter 2 verse 13 details that total destruction will fall upon Assyria. That is Judah's northern neighbors. And then chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 details that judgment will fall on the epicenter of Jerusalem. The symbolism that Zephaniah promotes is the fact that God's final judgment will cover the four points of the globe and all the nations. Yes, his judgment will be exhaustive. No one will escape it. Some people argue that a God of love could not also be a God of such judgment. But those two concepts are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they are mutually inclusive. Think about how we just celebrated Easter, a time that reconciles the love of God with the wrath of God. In preparation for Easter at Christ's triumphal entry, he overturned the money tables. He cleansed the temple courts where people had turned God's house of worship into a den of thieves. And then Jesus evidences the principles of selfless love which the church should exhibit by healing the blind and the lame in those same courts. Don't you find it interesting that the church was exploiting people for money while they were not caring for the least of these? And that angers the heart of God. In preparation for Easter at Christ's cross on Good Friday, the sinless Savior bore the punishment for sin that you and I deserve so that God's wrath would be satisfied. What, may I ask you, evidences the principles of selfless love more than that? He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. Jesus, Messiah, name above all names. Indeed, God's judgment will be exhaustive, but it will eventually fall upon us or it will have already fallen upon Jesus. While our grounds for conviction before a holy God is overwhelming, 
Christ's atoning work on our behalf overturns the guilty verdict we deserve. You might say two options sit before us. We will either ignore the warnings and the invitation of the gospel, or we will celebrate that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He replaces the record of our sin and he replaces our despair with forgiveness and hope. And the good news is that anyone can turn to Jesus. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9 says that all may call upon the name of the Lord. So while the judgment of God is just and exhaustive, the offer of the gospel is limitless. No one is too far gone. No sin is too great to be forgiven. The offer is there. The judgment of God for your sin or the forgiveness of Christ for the sinner. You choose. Zephaniah thus directs us to God's loving and comforting song. With all three of our children, Certain songs in their younger years helped to ease them when they slept. So before they would go to bed, my, my wife, who sings much better than me, although I'm going to sing a cappella for you now. I'm kidding. Um, my, my wife would sing over Whitman. His, the song that he really resonated with was, um, God is so good. And then my son Chamblin, he really loves and still, but he loved at that time when, when Brooke would sing over him, oh, how I love Jesus. And then Balin, well, she'll listen to anything. Um, <laughs> but um, I think her favorite is Jesus loves me. Can't you readily identify with some song or songs that you especially like? They're the songs that make our hearts glad. You know, when they come on the radio, you're sitting there driving, and even though the only time you're really good at singing is when you're in the shower, you find yourself belting out the words, and I mean, you're just going at it. And you come to a stoplight, and the person next to you is like, what is wrong with that person? Right? But you keep singing anyway. Sometimes we can't help but to sing because we appreciate the song that's playing so much. There's comfort in the song, and the voice quiets our concerns, even if just for a moment. I recall vividly the days leading up to the doctors performing the MRI on Whitman when he was one year old with his head and the concerns that they had, and um, I'm, I'm driving, I can't remember where I'm going. And the song that came on the radio, I'll never forget it, um, was Praise You in the Storm by Casting Crowns. 
And I mean, I'm weeping like a baby and singing poorly, but I'm comforted even as I'm just torn up at the same time. And I believe that there's a correlation with that example and the broader message of Zephaniah. Isn't the song of the gospel so much more beautiful when we truly believe its message, when we truly understand the message of the gospel? Isn't it so much more beautiful? When you look at what Zephaniah is saying, and he's saying, all of your sins made known, laid bare before the judgment seat of God. How are you going to stand? Seriously, I mean, even if you're not a believer today, and even with those who are in our culture who don't believe in God, are you seriously going to tell me that you don't recognize that there's some wrong in you? That there's some evil that resides in your heart and in your mind? That there are thoughts that you have that are not right and there are things that you do that are not good? Are you seriously going to tell me that you don't identify that at all? And so to think that I am a sinner, where we phrase that, to know that I am a sinner who must give account for my life and yet Jesus Christ bore my punishment. Does it not want to cause you to weep? Not with sadness, but with joy. I mean, doesn't it move you? And cause you to want to sing. I'm, I'm comforted by that truth. Zephaniah 3.15 portrays the Lord as king. And then verse 17 describes him as a warrior and as a bridegroom. And according to verses 18 to 20, I encourage you to look at them, those who receive him as their king, as their warrior, as their bridegroom, according to verses 18 to 19, they will not face punishment. They will be victorious. And they will be brought home as a bride. I have been fortunate on a number of occasions to officiate weddings. And I, I truly enjoy doing it. And as a, my favorite part, by and large, is always the same in every service that I have done. I'll be standing there at the front, and beside me is the groom. And it's that moment when the music comes and the doors open and his bride appears. I just pat him on his back and go, here we go. <laughs> just see the look in his eyes, the love he has for his bride. Listen to God's song that springs out from the lips of Isaiah in chapter 62, verse 4 and 5. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, 
nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight, your land Beulah. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. You are his delight. And he looks at you with such love. The singer of God's song is undoubtedly the person, Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom who stands delighting over his bride, the church. Three times, Zephaniah refers to the Lord in your midst. In verse 5, in verse 15, and in verse 17. And that reference is ultimately to Christ's birth. Listen afresh. Listen to the words again from Matthew 1, 21 to 23. These are not just Christmas verses. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the Lord in our midst. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one alone who is mighty to save his people from their sins. And so it is that the song of the gospel comforts us. We can rest secure in knowing who it is who sings over us. According to verse 13 and 16, we no longer have anything to fear, nothing to fear. Do not be afraid. If you were in Christ, the judgment of God does not fall upon you. It fell on him. According to verse 15, we no longer need despair are to feel ashamed because he sees us as the bridegroom sees his bride. And we are beautiful in his sight. His delight. When Chamlin was a toddler, um, he rarely slept through the night. I mean, if we only had to get up with him once, it was, you know, a, an achievement. We, we celebrated it. There was one particular night, and, you know, we had the monitor beside our bed. And, you know, y'all kind of almost expect it. You know, it's kind of like you have that inner alarm clock. It's going to go, this is when he's going to go. You know, Chamlin's going to wake me up. And I heard him stirring, st you know, stirring on his sleep and so did Brooke and so we were expecting to get up and we always took turns who would go rock him but on this particular occasion Chamlin did not cry and he did not cry out 
on this particular occasion, he started to sing the familiar words that my wife would sing over him before he went to sleep. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. That's good to be woken to. Frederick Whitfield wrote that song in the mid-1800s because of the mighty name of Jesus. It is the name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds as music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. The name of Jesus was like music in the ear of Whitfield. Is the name of Jesus music to your ear? It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Jesus' name is so sweet because as we read in Acts 4, verse 12, he is, is the only name by which a person can be saved. It is so sweet because as what we read in Romans 5, verse 10, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' name is the perfect plea. It can quiet our fears and our despair. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Zephaniah 3.13 thus extorts, exhorts us to sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so that's what we're going to do together. We're going to shout through song. And we're going to sing the first two stanzas of Frederick Whitfield's song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And I pray that as we sing the lyrics before the chorus, we will know why he sings over us this. And so we sing a response because of that. And that's why the chorus is what the chorus is. I sing it out because Jesus loves me so. The author is open. Stand as we sing.